0: So we're going to talk to you today about, well, this is a work in progress, so to your comments. And we're going to be talking about what we think are some interesting impacts that novel technology might have on our punishment practices. So we are going to be talking about um, technologies which we call transformative technologies. Um, this is a term I used in a paper with Steve Clark, and this is our definition of it here. Um, there might be all sorts of ways in which various transformative technologies might impact on punishment. We're only going to be focusing on three case studies here. And these three can all be subsumed under the description enhancement technology. Um, but that's not just to say that it's a, enhancement technologies are the only transformative technologies that we, will be relevant Yeah. OK. So I'm going to start out as a sort of framing exercise, um, just so we'll just describe some issues that we think are going to be raised here um, for, for punishment theory that you can uh, think about as we go through the material. So the first one I've got here is rethinking penal quantum. This is a question of how much punishment we should be um, we should be inappropriate for a given crime. Now even subtracting transformative technologies from the issue, this is a pretty difficult question to answer. It's reasonably easy to agree on an ordinal ranking of Crimes, so to decide how severe a given crime is with respect to other crimes. And um, so, for example, murder is worse than shoplifting. And based on that ranking, we can agree that you know, murder should be punished severely than shoplifting. However, it's much more difficult to justify um, cardinal judgments about the severity of crime. So, to say, for example, that a, a given murder should attract a certain punishment, and to justify that decision without making any reference to any other crimes kind or of the ways in which they're punished. Now, the technology we're going to be discussing raise some interesting questions here because, um, well, for example, um, we might consider whether the whether prison sentences are the length that they are because of implicit judgments about the life expectancy of the criminal. So, you know, when you give when you pass a certain sentence that that's sort of calculated with respect to the, the lifespan of the criminal the criminal. And if that's the case, then as lifespan increases, you might want to change that. And that seems to have happened with, um, with fines. So as average wealth that increase. Um, the fines that people are given for particular crimes increase with that. Um, if that's not the case, if we shouldn't be responding to increasing life expectancy with increasing prison sentences. Then, it, then we, need to, we need to answer the question, what factors are relevant in judging what makes a particular punishment appropriate to a given crime? The next question relates to the, um, the next issue relates to the subjective experience of punishment. Um, so, it seems like a sort of pretty basic question to ask, but should, should punishment be unpleasant? Is that important? And if so, is it important that punishment is unpleasant in particular ways? Um, now, the answer to that is going to depend on which theory of punishment you subscribe to, and that's something, it has, something we can talk about in a minute. Um, I mean, there are some there are some things that, uh, that go on in, in prisons at the moment that, that make prison more bearable for prisoners. So, sort of taking art classes, for example, or doing yoga. So, we might also sort of ask the question whether um, whether that's actually frustrating the aims of the punishment. You know, should we be making prison more pleasant for prisoners, or, or should we still sort of make it as unpleasant as possible? The reason why this is relevant is that certain technologies might. it might become possible to intervene and reliably manipulate criminal's emotions and then we need to consider whether we ought to be doing that. A striking example here is psychopaths. So emotionally psychopaths for their actions and for their crimes and in that case um, until they can be killed, it, it might be important to lock them up to incapacitate them and stop them from harming others, but it might be inappropriate to think of that as a retributive punishment um, you know, to make them suffer for what they've done that might not be appropriate another issue that relates to emotions which Hannah's going to talk about as well is remorse, we generally think of that as an appropriate and desirable response to a crime it might become possible in the future to induce it artificially. And if that were possible, we need to think about whether that's a a desirable thing to do. Okay, Uh, there are some more issues to think about here. Next, um, we need to think about what technologies we should allow prisoners and other criminals to keep while they're being punished. Um, So if you imagine a situation where all sorts of enhancement technologies Mm -hmm. are available and all sorts of people use them in various ways, it's possible that we might want to deprive criminals of enhancements as a punishment, or at least confiscate the enhancement while they're being punished. So, for example, if uh, you perhaps wouldn't want prisoners who were capable of superhuman strength or could make themselves invisible, I mean, that, would seem, that would seem sort of uh, difficult to deal with in prison. However, we don't deprive criminals of their medical treatment as part of their punishment. That would be inhumane. Um, and since we don't want to um, since we don't want to um, oh, thank you <laughs> sorry <No. laughs> I tried to do two confused at once sorry about that. Um, yeah so we don't we don't, deprive, we don't deprive criminals of their medical treatment um, unless we want to subscribe to some dubious view about the moral significance of the distinction between therapy and enhancement which we don't we then need to consider what factors determine when it's acceptable to confiscate an enhancement punishment, and when it's not. Um, more broadly speaking, um, we need to consider what factors make a punishment inhumane or humane in general. Um, now, there are lots of ways in which the sorts of technology we're going to be talking about might seem inhumane, um, and we might be sort of liable to the when in which they're inhumane. So, for example, the idea of thought or behaviour technology might bring to mind sort of um, of what happens in a clockwork orange, for example. But we need to ask sort of whether whether that sort of seems more inhumane than it actually is because it's, un- it's a, sort of dystopic and futuristic and it's unfamiliar. I mean is it any more inhumane for example than locking somebody else somebody up for their life, the the remainder of their life, you know, which sort of does away with any chance of living a reasonably good life? Um, you know, we, we need to sort of work out a, a way of comparing current accepted practices to what may become, what may become practices of punishment in the future. Um, to complicate matters further, it looks like it possibly some methods might be humane under some circumstances, but not under other circumstances. So according to current thinking, solitary confinement is an acceptable punishment method for short periods of time, but it's inhumane for a the life sentence, so again, we need to consider what factors are relevant here. Okay, so that's the uh, that's kind of the framing done. Here are some examples of some transformative technologies that might have um, interesting impacts on punishment. Uh, not going to go through them um, all here, we're going to focus on three cases, oh, um, two different versions of the presentation. Sorry about that. Um, we're going to focus on three case studies here. I'm going to talk about lifespan enhancement. Anders is then going to talk about implantable technologies. And then Hannah's going to talk about emotional enhancement. And there are several ways in which we might determine the effects that transformative technologies might impact on punishment. The first depends on the theoretical justification of the life penal system, which Hannah's going to talk about in a minute. And whether the technology has aims for, um, has implications for the system achieving its end, so whether it might sort of enhance the ability of the punishment method to achieve its ends or frustrate it. Um, the technology might also have implications for the remit of the system. That might be the case of technology if enhancement technologies create new sort of new crimes to punish. That people in the future can enhance themselves in certain ways in order to commit crimes, <coughs> um, and also technology might have implications for the practical operation of the system, and that might be things like in the future if we have sort of robot prison wardens, or um, if we have sort of smart methods of surveillance that not only observe and record activity, but maybe animals' behaviour for possible signs of wrongdoing. Right, I'm going to hand to Hannah
1: now, who's going to talk about some of the theoretical underpinnings of punishment. Okay, so this bit's going to be quite brief. I'm sure you're all familiar with the um, usual theories of punishment and, and why we think it might be justified. Um, but on the first slide here, we've got the sort of backwards-looking um, theories of punishment that look at um, what the offender deserves for the crime that she's committed. Um, and so the basic theories of the retribution... Um, look at the sort of suffering that should be imposed that is proportionate to the seriousness um, of the crime that was committed. That's sort of your basic eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth retribution. Um, More modern desert theories um, look instead at at what um, level of censure is appropriate given the seriousness of the offence. So what the important difference here is that uh, people who work on censure theories don't think that punishment per se is what is deserved. Rather the offender deserves censure, um, so some sort of authoritative communication by the state um, of of disapprobation um, for the offense. Um, And that the way that this censure is communicated is via punishment. Um, And there are various arguments why punishment should be um, the the method for communicating censure, but um, this is the sort of more modern um, form of desert theory. So um, then, the next uh, justifications, which I'm sure you're also familiar with, are uh, consequentialist justifications. So, looking at what the what effects um, the punishment will have for the offender himself or for the uh, white community. So. Um, obviously punishment has deterrent effects both specific and general so it deters the offender who's actually experiencing the punishment we hope from um, doing it again and it also deters the general public who may may be yet to commit any offences but see what would happen if they were to and incapacitation just simply keeps dangerous people um, out of the community Um, and then the final two sort of forward looking consequentialist justifications which might be seen as maybe slightly more positive um, are the reform and rehabilitation of the offender um, and perhaps also restoration which comes from the theories of restorative justice so looking at some way of restoring the relationship, so this, this would only apply for some offences but restoring the relationship between the victim and the offender or finding some other way that the offender can do something to make, make what he did less bad, or the effects of it less bad. Um, and so this is a little bit of repetition, but instead of, so Rebecca outlined the sort of substantive penal issues that technologies will either re-raise, or maybe new ways, or and the new issues that transformative technologies might raise for penal theory. But a slightly different way of sort of um, looking at the effects of of technology on punishment or the the way in which we might go about punishing is to think about whether they might um, enhance uh, punishment. So this would be um, by increasing the range or scope of punishment methods. And uh, Rebecca already gave the example of whether withholding enhancements might become a new method of punishment. Um, whether transformative technologies might support punishment, so whether they will help existing methods to achieve their aims, and improved monitoring might um, lead to improved deterrence, for example, because uh, so it's quite a well known fact that the cert- certainty of punishment has a better deterrent effect than the severity of punishments. So if, if we were able to make it more certain that offenders were apprehended then we might actually be able to reduce the severity of the punishments if the deterrent effect would remain the same. Uh, Transformative technologies might undermine um, punishments, so might kind of thwart the uh, aims of existing methods. Um, And examples of this might be technologies that maybe made hard treatment less bad um, or less hard. So this would have implications for retributive theories. Um, Perhaps certain pharmaceuticals uh, current or future pharmaceuticals might be seen to make things just less bad for, for offenders, their, their experience of it, and whether this would undermine the undermine the aims, for example, of retribution. Um, transformative technologies might um, inadvertently make punishment worse. And again, Rebecca's given the example of um, life sentences that were perhaps intended to be symbolic, uh, becoming actual penal sanctions if people were to be able to live longer. And uh, technologies might create new crimes, as we've already um, discussed. So, our three case studies, Rebecca's on the mentioned, so we're we'll going to get to uh, first one. Okay.
0: So, lifespan enhancement. I guess most um, people in the got this room are like, going to so this, but I'll just be a very brief recap. So, to begin, this is... Oh! <laughs> We've got sort of set, we ended up with sort of three different versions of the presentation on each computer, so i are kind of sort the old nasty surprise as we go along. Um, so basically, um, the idea is that lifespan is is continuously increasing; we expect it to continue to go up. Um, however, that's kind of happening on the order of like a couple of decades. Um, we expect people people nowadays to live from deck or for maybe a decade or two longer than but there are people, uh, notably Aubrey de Grey, who think that we can increase lifespan sort of much further beyond that. So he thinks, for example, that it, it, it's possible that the first person who's going to live to a thousand might already be alive. Now, um, if we, um, if that's the case, then um, that's going to have some interesting implications for punishment, which we're going to consider here. So these examples are sort of based on the idea that maybe um, you can live to sort of around a thousand. Um, so, lifespan enhancement might enhance punishment. Um, the most obvious way, at least to me, that this might happen is that we could sentence people to a life sentence in conjunction with lifespan enhancement, and that would just enable them to serve a much longer sentence. And this was really the germ of the idea for this paper. Um, it occurred to me when reading about um, the sort of horrible Daniel Helga murder case, that um, there were just some it's just not possible to give certain criminals a sort of severe enough retributive punishment given their life expectancy and given the sort of conditions of UK prisons. So um, we can sort of enhance their life and make themselves an even longer sentence and maybe that would sort of go somewhere way to um uh, towards kind of giving them proportionate retributive punishment. But that was just sort of mean maternal range, so <laughs> you know everyone would do. prisoners who are sentenced to death often appeal to get their death sentences commuted to life sentences. And that suggests that they prefer a long period in prison over a short period followed by death. So if that sort of observation can be, um, can be extended to the sort of timescale that we're thinking about here, it could mean that enhancing the life of a criminal in order to make themselves an extremely long life sentence would make the punishment more lenient rather than more severe. So in that case it wouldn't would achieve the aim of making the punishment more severe. However, um, there are prisoners who are currently serving extremely long sentences, particularly in the US. Um, I think the the Guinness World Record for the longest prison sentence currently being served is held by an American child molester called Charles Scott Robinson who was sentenced to 30,000 years in 1994. That's not even the... uh, I mean, that's the longest sentence that's actually being served. The longest sentence ever demanded in court seems to be held by um, the prosecutors of a Spanish gentleman called Gabriel Bernardes, who in 1972 demanded a sentence of nearly 400,000 years for him. He wasn't a a child of Westbrook, a postman, who hadn't been delivering his mail. Um, He actually ended up getting something like 14 years, so it uh, didn't turn out. But anyway, you know, we might ask why prisoners are why prisoners are given these extremely long sentences when you know nobody expects them to be able to serve even you know, a small fraction of them. Now, the answer we think is that they're intended to be symbolic. So this has to do with the, the censure function that Helen had mentioned earlier. That by by giving a prisoner by giving a criminal an extremely long sentence, even though you don't expect them to be able to serve it, it's a, it's, it's an expression of disapproval. So this is how bad your Symbolic. However, if lifespan enhancement became, if people became able to live for a thousand years during the course, during the time when, say, Charles Scott Robinson is still serving his portion of his 30,000-year sentence, it might, it might turn out that he he's able to serve a lot a lot more of that sentence than was originally anticipated. And that and that means that what was intended to be a symbolic aspect of the punishment actually turns into an actual retributive punishment looking so, at. So that might mean that um, in some cases at least the prison sentence would be disproportionate and we might have to go back and sort of rethink <coughs> some of these life sentences. Now, another way in which lifespan enhancement might enhance punishment is kind of the opposite from, um, from the first idea I suggested. So rather than enhancing prisons and getting them to serve extremely long sentences, we might envisage a situation in which lifespan enhancement is widely available, it's widely used, in, included by criminals, and we might punish them by withholding lifespan enhancement technology. Um, this is probably inhumane. Um, we don't, as I said before, we don't withhold medical treatment from criminals as a punishment, and withholding lifespan enhancement technology is basically going to be the same thing. Um, so uh, so we might redescribe lifespan enhancement technology as life-saving technology, and um, you know in that case that would be in, in there. Right, moved on to the slide So here. here's how lifespan enhancement might like, support management. Um, the main way we might do this is by improving the prospects for reform and rehabilitation. So there might there, there are some prisoners today who are plausibly unreformable. So sort of aging psychopaths, you know, a psychopath. Um, now that depends on the assumptions about how long those sorts of criminals are going to live. If it were the case that we, we, we had sort of hundreds of years to play with before they died, then it might be that certain criminals who are unperformable now are over that sort of time of scale. We can, we can reform them and reintroduce them into society. However, that would involve keeping them in prison while we did this, and that, that could turn out to be disproportionate. I mean, If they're violent criminals, it is Presumably, people in prison in order to incapacitate and stop in harming others. From a retributive point of view, that could mean and disproportionately. It's also going to be, we're not going to be certain, at least initially, of how successful this is likely to be. So, when lifespan enhancement first becomes available, we don't know how long it's going to take to be able to reform a previously unreformable criminal or how successful that's likely to be. Um, there are also issues about personal identity here. So um, if you think about a human life extending over a thousand years, in the personal identity literature, um, so for example, like Derek Clark and David Lewis, conceive like of that sort of very long lifespan as inhabited by a succession of persons rather than a single person who lives for a thousand years. <coughs> Now, if that were the case and we were imprisoning criminals for hundreds of years, that could end up with one person serving a prison sentence as a punishment for a crime committed by another person, and that would obviously be unjust. It might be that once lifespan enhancement technology becomes widely available, our views about personal identity will change and we just will think of persons as existing over that sort of time yeah. But even so that would kind of be a folk idea about personal identity and it would be a further question as to whether that's Philosophically respectable. Okay, um, I right, I've already talked about this, so I'm gonna mix up in the slides. But yes, so life is make might make un- punishment unintentionally worse by making the sort of long, very long prison sentences and it's a retributive punishment rather than the symbolic sentences which they're supposed to be already talked about. So I will hand over to Anders now
2: for okay. a okay. Thank you. Uh, So a lot of enhancements naturally tend to become part of the person. Uh, So for example, gene therapy is also an enhancement, but it's not just that it goes into the body, it becomes part of the body. I'm mostly here going to be talking about something you put in that that in theory at least might be removed. It might be an interesting question actually if somebody is doing illegal gene therapy, uh, whether you could remove that. So the main question seems to be actually, can we remove it, as in, uh, and, uh, can they be used as punishment and how do we change punishment? And the removal question is kind of interesting because <coughs> t- traditionally uh, prisoners for, in, uh, and quite a lot of other criminals lose the right to their possessions. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a deliberate punishment, uh, it's a fine or uh, something is taken from them as a uh, punishment. Sometimes it's an indirect effect. Prisoners do not have a right to a lot of property. So in that case, we might make an analogy here for an, an implant or that maybe you might punish people by removing the implant, or it might be that prisoners with laser uh, guns in their hands or uh, a good communication implants in their heads, well, they cannot be allowed to have them inside the prison. Not because we think we need punishment for having it, but rather that it would be against the order of the prison. So we might say that the removal might be a side effect of the intended punishment. Now, the problem here is, of course, uh, what, how to motivate this and uh, what reasons can we find actually to remove it and not remove it. And uh, it's interesting to note that prisoners actually do have rather strong rights to circumcisions. I was reading through the British regulations uh, a bit earlier. The main part that seems to be very hard to remove is religious symbols and religious texts. Uh, almost everything else, well that's optional. If a prisoner behaves himself, yes, he's allowed to do quite a lot of things, there mm-hmm. are a lot of very amusing uh, um, bureaucratic restrictions of, of what kind of cassette tapes they're allowed to have and not. Uh, but a Bible, that's something that uh, actually, it takes a quite serious internal crime to remove a prisoner's Bible. And of course, if a prisoner has a pacemaker, and this is not that uncommon actually, especially in the US, about 10% of the population already having implanted medical devices, and there is a huge prison population that is also aging. There are actually interesting problems with how to man the Alzheimer's works at some of the major American prisons, because we're having enough elderly prisoners. Uh, So there is an interesting (coughs) literature about maintenance of pacemakers in prison, and one can certainly imagine other uh, medical systems. And again, it's very clear that, yes, these medical systems can be removed. At this point, you might just say, oh, let's invoke enhancement uh, therapy distinction and say, prisoners have a right to therapy, but they do not have a right to enhancement. But the problem here is, of course, that, yeah, there are some non-therapeutic things like bibles that you're actually not allowed to remove from prisoners without very good reasons. And uh, indeed, it turns out that uh, there are various other parts uh, of the hospital that might be extremely hard to remove. So a very trivial example would, of course, be uh, if somebody, uh, if I pay somebody to make a piercing of my liver, which would be a cool body modification and uh, would get all the transhumanists, amazed. But it would be clearly against the law, it would be a lot of medical malpractice, etc. So most likely the guy implanting it and me would both be guilty of at least some crimes in those jurisdictions. However, removing something from my liver would take general anesthesia and major surgery, it would be fairly impractical. Even worse, if the illegal implant was let's say a titanium object implanted in my bone structure, uh, actually my bone would grow around it. Titanium is one of the few metals that has this property that uh, the, the osteoblasts uh, actually like it. So they grow around it and integrate it. It literally becomes part of my physical structure. Removing it is removing it, about the equivalent as removing a similar sized part of bone. So that's going to be very practical and potentially dangerous. It might also be reversible because uh, this kind of surgery is likely to cause some damage. So if you think about a neural implant, removing it might indeed lead to scar tissue preventing a use of a, a new implant. But most importantly kind of most more standard is of course this issue of body integrity, which is a serious uh, issue. There is quite a lot of case law about uh, whether the police has a right to do minor surgery to extract bullets from people in order to do uh, ballistic status of them. And at least in the US the courts have generally found that uh, uh, since this breach is probably integrative, it's a very male matter. It uh, involves a lot of Fourth Amendment rights. And uh, typically, the view is, no, you, you will not be able to do it. Even in a few cases where it has been fairly clear that this could do, uh, be done a little bit without general anesthesia, just some local anesthetic, and the risk would be very small, but no risk for complication. Again, courts have found against it. There seemed to be an assumption that, yes, in principle, it might, under some circumstances, be, an, uh, be possible to do it, but it, it takes some, at least legally, very strong reasons for it. Um, now, there are other interesting aspects of this, because this bodily integrity is not just that something is physically inside the body. It might be that we the functionally part of a person's physiology or mental state. My friend Todd, for example, got an implanted magnet in his finger. It moves as a response to magnetic fields, and uh, he senses that with the normal touch sensors inside his fingertip. The interesting thing is, of course, that over a time span of weeks and months, he learns uh, how to interpret these signals. He reported, for example, that he could distinguish between mechanical and magnetic vibrations when touching objects. Now, this suggests that up in the somatosensory cortex, there is actually a representation of a sense that none of us possesses. Uh, he actually had reorganized his brain to handle a new sense. Whether it actually has uniqueness or something else is an interesting question I haven't been able to get out of it, but it would be fascinating to find out. But now suppose somebody were to remove that. That would actually remove a sense from a person. Yes, it's a sense, you can live a good life without, I think we all agree that, but uh, that would be a bit like a room uh, of Columbine people saying, yes, it's no problem that the incident that this prisoner is going to lose his color he's not going to lose anything. After all, we don't care. So the problem might be there is a subjective value, and it's also integrated in his life form. It is literally part of how he's now perceiving the world. Maybe not an essential part, although, of course, it's also an expression of himself and his views about who and what he is. So it seems like there is a functional integrity to consider, too. There is also, of course, this thing that we might even become functionally dependent on the implants. And uh, so we have, of course, people with medical implants, but quite often we lean also on our other equipment. Whether that's crutches or smartphones, they tend to actually become a part of the system. In general, it seems that we're kind of growing together with our enhancements over time, and this seems to make a lot of these removal options rather main and reaching various integrities. Uh, there is also an interesting problem about how we integrate in society. So there have been cases where people have committed computer crimes, and as part of the probation conditions, they have not been allowed to use computers, or not been allowed to use computers connected to the Internet. Now, back in the 80s, uh, uh, this was probably a fairly reasonable thing. You could live a good life without ever touching a computer, you could have most of the normal jobs, you could do most education. Already in the 90s, this became a bit tricky. So, Cosmo the God, for example, uh, one of the members of Anonymous, uh, uh, he has to have written permission to use an internet enabled device. Now, how many internet enabled devices are there in, in this room? And when you use your bus card uh, on the bus out there, that device, although the card might not be using it, the, the device is actually internet enabled. Most likely, this is a clever uh, strategy because in a few months, most likely, just yes, like Ken mentioned, uh, his lawyers are going to argue that this is overbroad, this will not work if uh, my client is supposed to integrate with society. He cannot actually study uh, at university without using a computer, without somebody standing over the shoulder checking that he's not using it for anything but the recreational purposes. Uh, but this is an interesting demonstration of how changing technology might make it so essential that actually in order to function in society, we need the technology. Especially when it comes to punishment, involving probable enhancement, we might have this problem that at the point in time where the judge makes his uh, pronouncement, it might seem reasonable. Yes, you can be without the infrared to 10 years down the line, that might no longer be true. Um, there are also other interesting uh, problems with this. But generally, it seems like, uh, Removing it would probably be akin to something like corporate punishment, which most Western nations have uh, decided is inhumane and we cannot do it. But if there might be reasons, for example, in prison, if it's a dangerous part, if it's sufficiently you know, sharp or you know, lethal, then there might be an you know, overwhelming reason. But otherwise, the option of removing it even uh, because you don't want someone to have it seems to be problematic, and removal as punishment, well, that's equivalent to some form of real punishment, which, of course, some retributes might be totally all right with, but uh, in general it seems like it might be hard to get into the legal system. Restorative rehabilitative or you know, so even a approach might have trouble with this. Of course, one might turn things around, too. Uh, it might be that the implants might actually deliver a punishment, so we already have ex- a growing existing legal body about uh, tracking, electronic tracking devices. So external angle detectors, you can imagine a miniaturized version inside the body. And there already exists, of course, these radio frequency ID chips, which are implanted. And uh, you could imagine using that to mark criminals and uh, monitor the behavior in various forms. Uh, and again, doing this as a part of uh, probation seems to be somewhat possible, it's an alternative to prison, it might be an alternative to angles, uh, however, it might be very problematic as an involuntary prison, uh, involuntary punishment. And again, we get to the body the integrity the argument here, so most of the legal scholars who are writing about it qu- quickly point out that uh, this would be a, a real punishment. Uh, however, one can, of course, still it as, from a practical standpoint, this might be a good cost-saving device. Another interesting form of predation condition is implanted medicines, like contraceptives or hormonal treatments that act as chemical castrations for sexual offenders, uh, or even uh, anti-drug treatments uh, like antidepressants. Uh, and again, there have been uh, quite a lot of discussion about what pressures might uh, rightly be allowed to do to push people to use this. It's really interesting thing that there seems to be a resulting positive right to have that impact removed by the state. If the state puts it in, then uh, the that will better also be able to pay for removing it once the punishment of probation is over. But it's fair to also start thinking about more dramatically the things. The previous ones they were not really intended as punishment per se. They might have some punishing aspects, especially in the form of kind of even incapacitation. If you cannot go close to some, to certain some prescribed area without triggering a signal, that might be a form of incapacitation. But you might, of course, uh, do something that gives you pain if you go to a wrong area. Or every uh, time at noon, you get a bit of pain. And that's an the punishment. Now, this seems to be really problematic. Again, we have all the previous problems about the integrity, uh, but it also seems to almost make the, the uh, offenders' body complicity of the punishment. And then, of course, one can go even further and start thinking about uh, what about uh, actually affecting uh, the brain, the uh, mind, uh, which actually has been tried to some extent. So, this is Jose Delgado controlling aggression in a bull, uh, a very famous uh, uh, demonstration of interest in science and bad PR. And about at the same time, uh, Robert J. Heath was very interested in using an electrode implant to control aggressive impulses. In, in the people at the mental hospital uh, and to try to uh, reprogram <coughs> sexual orientation and at uh, least was kind of interested in, could we use this to civilize our society, could we keep pace with the atom bomb by making ourselves safer so this is in a sense taking perhaps a rehabilitative uh, and utilitarian uh, approach to its ultimate limit. <laughs> let's just change uh, the offender to be a nicer person and again, uh, most people will agree that the decided the, the previous reason say, yeah, the autonomy is really messed up here. However, it might be messed up in interesting very circumscribed ways. We might imagine a fender who has an implant in his motivational system. So every time he gets close uh, to a bar, his motivation level drops. He never gets motivated to go in there. That's the punishment. He's completely free, in all other remains, it's just that he never will feel the motivation to get into the bar we might still debate whether that is inhumane or acceptable manipulation of a person. But it seems that, unlike you know, reprogramming somebody like the bull, the fact that this is more precision seems to make it slightly better. But it's still really, uh, probably it runs up like most uh, normal judges. But one can continue, of course, thinking about finer and finer, higher and higher precision of manipulation here, where we get over to essentially nudging motivations, at which point our intuitions might actually be surprisingly. Finally, of course, there might be other ways of affecting the apartment. If we live in a real enhanced society, for example, uh, not being part of that might be real bad. And conversely, of course, uh, enhancement might also make us less like myth crime if we're all much smarter and more moral. Uh, There is this question about maybe enhancement is regarding society as a privilege. Now we will be framing it as a possession, but it might be that it's instead of the future going to be regarded as a privilege if you have And if you commit a crime, you lose your license, just like you can lose your license to drive a car. Uh, We might get a very much diverse society. And, of course, in the far reaches, we reach this point where we can change personal identity in tricky ways or change motivation or pleasure and pain. David Pierce has been talking about uh, post-humans that have no aversive experience. They're only motivated by different levels of pleasure. Uh, Regardless of whether one thinks that is possible or not, you can. One of these post humans would be very hard to punish because he would not be suffering from that. He might be recognize remorse, or, uh, perhaps he'd feeling slightly less smug and happy when he's mm-hmm. feeling remorse, but most likely he would be really happy now because mm-hmm. he realized yes, yes, I can go out and help the people I brought. So, in that case, you mm-hmm. get a very extreme case. However, Next, the uh, part is about emotional enhancement, which I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: so um, when discussing emotional enhancement, probably this debate overlaps quite a lot with the general debate on the moral enhancement. But uh, we're going to try to focus here on what questions are particular um, to the criminal justice context. So um, the relevant emotions are going to be something like remorse, shame, guilt. Um, all of which um, I think are different, and I think that remorse is the um, emotion to focus on um, as the the kind of ideal response to to wrongdoing. Um, And so remorse is, to describe it as an emotion, might be to slightly under-describe it. Remorse should be understood as a sort of complex syndrome that involves both affective elements, so just feeling terrible, um, uh, the the sort of the horror and the pain that comes with uh, thinking about what you've done um, and the beliefs that probably motivate such feelings. So um, understanding the harm that you've caused um, and being able to believe that it's wrong and to um, intend not to do it again in the future perhaps. Um, and also action tendencies, which would be things like the, um, motivation to apologize or to try to repair what you've done. Um, so in some ways it's quite useful to think about remorse. I think as a sort of emotional comprehension. Um, and philosophers like um, Raymond Gator have have tried to describe it as something like a sort of lucid understanding of the the reality of the other that I have harmed. So it's it's very much um, understanding what you've done in the way that it's affected the person that you've harmed. Um, And I don't think it's going to be possible to ever sort of engineer people to just feel remorse or to be able to induce remorse very simply, but there may be things that we can do that will facilitate it or that will help with with part of the the remorseful experience. So empathy seems to be an obvious one, and I know it gets discussed a lot, but I I think it will be um, an interesting part of um, the discussion of of remorse and uh, responses to wrongdoing if we do find ways of of enhancing empathy. So um, substances like oxytocin, for example, uh, well, we know that they, they make people, for example, uh, pay more attention to facial expressions, make them more altruistic in um, economic games, and generally behave uh, pro-socially. And actually, genetic variations in oxytocin receptors also correlate with empathy levels. So it's not implausible that, that we could boost empathy um, chemically or through other, some other sort of brain intervention. Um, So if we were able to do this, empathy might do some of the work um, towards helping people feel remorseful, um, but it won't do all the work, but as I'm going to go on to suggest, this might actually be a a good thing. Um, So Rebecca already um, mentioned psychopaths, and I'm actually going to sort of put this issue to the side, although I think obviously it's a topic that would very naturally come up in a discussion of Um, emotional enhancement and punishment. But I think that the problems with um, understanding how responsible they are for what they've done in the first place makes uh, this kind of trickier um, than perhaps the more simple cases. Um, If we think that, so the sort of very reason that they need enhancing emotionally is the very reason that um, something like sensual retribution might be inappropriate because they have uh, perhaps defective emotional capacities. So I'm just going to um, put psychopaths to the side for the moment, although it is important to acknowledge that a a large proportion of the offending population do have some sort of um, antisocial personality disorder and um, other related conditions. So it's not that easy to say, well, these people are difficult and these people are not difficult. Um, Okay, so how might uh, enhancing remorse have uh, any effect on punishment? Well... Remorse might be seen as a sort of punishment, I guess. So remorse, as I said, is, is an unpleasant emotion. And so from a retributive point of view, the sort of basic retributive point of view, if you could make feel people feel even worse about what they've done, this would just be another kind of suffering that they underwent um, as, as punishment for, for um, their offence. Um, and perhaps enhancing remorse could also have a deterrent effect, so as well as... Um, offenders being motivated to avoid future prison sentences, they'd be motivated to avoid feeling uh, so terrible about what they did, um, if we were able to to enhance it. Um, Perhaps remorse is seen as a goal of punishment for some theories. So, especially theories that focus on uh, reform and rehabilitation, moral improvement, this is sort of the goal, right? It's to get offenders to realise what they've done and to feel that it's important and to to repudiate their wrongdoing. Um, and relatedly, but slightly differently, um, remorse is, uh, in censure theories is seen as the sort of appropriate response to censure. So if you're communicating a message of disapprobation to somebody, you would hope at least that they would understand the message and uh, respond to it with something like remorse. If you were to communicate, you just wouldn't engage in a sort of dialogue with somebody who wasn't capable of um, such a response. So if we were able to enhance remorse in offenders, this might actually improve the legitimacy of the system if it's based on one of these um, sort of censure justifications. So um, Anton Duff is uh, one of the leading penal theorists who adopts one of these censure views, um, although arguably he has has more consequentialism in his theory than he might like to admit. Um, The clue is in the word aim. um, But he says that punishment aims at the goals of repentance, reform and reconciliation with the community. Um, And echoing what I said, or perhaps I was echoing what he says, um, is that remorse is an internal to censure. So when we censure others for their wrongdoing, our intention or hope is that they'll accept uh, that censure is justified. In aiming to induce repentance, punishment thus aims to bring offenders to suffer what they deserve, the pains of repentance and remorse. But he doesn't think that we should try to achieve this by any old method. Um, So he thinks that we should be engaging in some sort of transparent persuasion. And this fits with his idea of um, sentencing being a sort of dialogue with the offender. So addressing him as a a rational moral agent who's capable of responding in in certain ways. Um, And so this would rule out um, things like... Brainwashing and manipulation. So, so, the idea that if we can just get people to feel a certain thing, then we've done our job, is, is not quite um, the whole story. So, would enhancing remorse be able to help us with this sort of aim of punishment? Um, well, I think it would. It would depend very much on how it's done. Um, and if the sort of um, idea of just stimulating the brain to feel remorse obviously wouldn't wouldn't achieve this in the right way. But perhaps if we can do it more indirectly um, by enhancing empathy, then this might be a better bet. And I don't think this would undermine any of the things that people like Duff are trying to say are important um, in punishment. So, what enhancing empathy would do would be to sort of give offenders the resources to understand what, they, what they've done, resources that they might not, um, might not have had. So um, empathy, in some cases, has been compared to a sort of skill. It's not. Uh, it's not something that you just have. That if you are an empathetic person, you'll you'll um, be uh, engaging in other people's experiences all the time. It's something that re- requires attention um, and practice. Um, and it's also something that could work the other way. So um, having a clear perception of the harm that you've caused actually be a source of pleasure to some victims and it would be an empirical question whether enhancing empathy would have uh, an effect more in the direction of remorse or just increased pleasure in the offence. Um, but the point is that just enhancing empathy doesn't just induce remorse. Um, it it only changes it changes something that people can't change for themselves. Um, so this seems okay because the idea of censure is this is something the offender does for himself, he reflects and uh, comes to understand what he's done. So um, it's kind of like giving people maybe better vision. They, they still have to turn their eyes to the, the relevant object and, and evaluate what they see there. Um, so it's not doing that work uh, for them. So we can think a bit more about what we value in remorse. If the, if the argument might still be, well, there's still something unnatural about it if we're to, if we're to enhance empathy and more offenders were more remorseful, there'd be something unnatural about this. Um, But we can think of some interesting cases where this this intuition doesn't quite track. Um, So there there might be cases where sort of natural remorse is is seen as inauthentic um, on some accounts of authenticity. So perhaps an offender who has a very sudden religious conversion and then is uh, subsumed with, by guilt um, in the face of having um, upset his God, then you might think that there's something there that isn't quite uh, doing what, what punishment is, is hoping to achieve, uh, even though it was sort of natural. Um, and there might be also cases where um, somebody is naturally incapable of experiencing remorse, but that would actually be, it would be more authentic if he were to be able to. So, there was a case in Poland where um, this chap, Maciej Zian Tusk, he was, um, he was uh, like the Polish equivalent of Jeremy Clarkson, and he uh, test drove a car and crashed it, killing his friend was a passenger. Um, and once he came out of his coma and went through rehabilitation, um, he was put on trial for, for his friends, uh, for, for their sort of equivalent of death by dangerous driving. Um, And one of the sticking points in the trial was that uh, Zintosky didn't seem to feel remorse. Um, And it's a bit complicated because he also had some amnesia about the event. But this chap really, really wanted to feel remorse. It wasn't the case that he was defiant um, about what he'd done or denied what he'd done. And he, in fact, said that he had three pictures on his bedroom walls. So the car before the crash, the car after the crash, a picture of his friend's grave and that he was sort of meditating on them trying to trying to get the right feelings um, but he just couldn't and so this would be an example where sort of facilitating a remorseful response might actually end up um, giving him a more sort of authentic emotional life so just uh, not quite funny but i think um, yeah if uh, if theorists were to still say, well, no, we don't want any kind of technologies that facilitate remorse, because that means they haven't done it all themselves. I think that this this is to some extent m- makes their position look not um, not very convincing, because there are going to be offenders who have trouble feeling remorse, have trouble. Um, feeling empathy for their victims and have trouble understanding what they've done. And if if punishment is seen to be justified um, by a theory that engages in something like censure that presupposes these emotional responses in order for it to be legitimate, then to resist technologies that might facilitate this, I think looks um, like a, a pretty dubious position where, where where the alternative is that you're just engaging in, in a practice that just can't work. Um, and so just finally, uh, we've talked a bit about um, the, the value of, of remorse and it's sort of a maybe negative emotion even though it's seen as um, valuable. Um, the final way in which we are thinking that uh, emotional enhancement might pose problems for punishment would be Uh, if there were medications in the future that could sort of make things too good for the offender. So um, perhaps pharmaceuticals that um, significantly enhance mood. And this is quite similar to what Anders was talking about with the happy post-human. And again, this brings us back to the the difficulty of what we do when we resist a treatment enhancement distinction, which we probably want to do, um, where we have prisoners who are perhaps routinely uh, taking pharmaceuticals that make things not that difficult for them, even in uh, conditions such as as prison. Um, so I'm now going to pass that to Rebecca. To Thanks. So I'm just going to sum up with um, a
0: more observational question. Um, so you might wonder why, what what we're, what new issues we're raising here. Um, I mean, certainly, if what we're concerned about is how um, technology might make uh, punishment more unpleasant in the future, then um, there's perhaps nothing new to think about. We already have methods of making punishment more unpleasant if we wanted to use them, um, but we don't do because they're inhumane or for other reasons. So for example, um, we can use solitary confinement over long periods of time, uh, we can use torture, um, we can use uh, and the idea of itching powder in prisoners' beds, um, or even there's a place in the past of modern art being used as torture um, <laughs> in Spain. Spain really seems to have the, um, the monopoly on weird well, management debtors here. Well, and, mm-hmm. here. Um, so what, you, what new issues are we raising here? Um, well, we're, we're not advocating any, any of these uses here. We're rather trying to anticipate uh, how and in what ways um, transformative technologies might Either be attractive to those who make decisions about punishment or how they might sort of accidentally interact with the punishment methods that we do have um, to raise important issues that need to be addressed. Um, to consider some broadly um, the relevance here, um, we might sort of address the general question of how we currently decide which punishment methods to use for a crime. Um, in practice, what happens is that there's a list of punishment options for any given category of crime um, and the judges. Choose from, from those. We're not really interested in that. Um, in theory, the punishment methods that's chosen depends partly on the type of crime. So there's the ordinal ranking of crimes that I mentioned earlier. So um, murder is worse than shoplifting, so we choose a more severe punishment for murder than being shoplifting. There's also the issue of incapacitation, so some, especially violent, dangerous people, need to be put in prison for the safety of everybody else. Um, also, in some um, the issue of light for light punishment comes into play. So, for example, somebody who has been um, convicted of defacing a public building by spraying graffiti might be required to remove the graffiti as part of their punishment. Um, the type of method that we choose also depends on criminal circumstances sometimes. So, there are some more like cases where a criminal might escape punishment because they have dependents who were suffering if they were imprisoned. Now, um, what transformative technology might do is increase the range of punishment options and the flexibility of the methods. So, for example, um, more punishment methods might mean more sort of, more crimes can be punished on a like-for-like basis. So, it needn't just be sort of a you know community orders to clean up the graffiti. We could sort of um, by manipulating Christmas emotions induce. Um, Criminals to feel the, the, what we do to be the right emotional response to the crime that they've committed, and, and that can see this kind of the life for life of the punishment. We can also fine-tune relevant features of the punishment. I mentioned earlier the, the, the issue of whether punishment ought to be unpleasant and unpleasant in the right way, and it's possible that technology might give us ways of making the punishments more unpleasant in the right ways and less less unpleasant in the wrong ones. With that sort of, uh, with that ability to manipulate the way in which people experience punishment, we might decide that the subjective experience of punishment is relevant here. Um, Now this isn't a completely new idea, so if you consider the practice of the day fine, where somebody is given a fine which is calculated as a proportion of their wealth, basically the idea is that um, the impact of that punishment on the person is sort of fine-tuned to their individual circumstances. Now, wealth is sort of reasonably easy to measure. Um, how somebody might react to imprisonment and experience it is sort of less easy to measure and compare. But you know, maybe one day with improved sort of psychological profiling, it could be. Um, and in that case, perhaps we, we might want to sort of tailor tailor the punishments to to criminals. So, for example, if we were able to determine uh, take two criminals who committed a, a similar crime, if we were able to determine that. One of one of those criminals would find prison life more difficult than the other. Then we could possibly sort of give the one who finds prison life easier a longer sentence. That's kind of a crude example, but you get the idea. Um, another another issue that we didn't discuss um, is mind uploading, and this could this could um, enable us to this could be a way of adapting punishment to criminal circumstances. So I mean, this is kind of a far fetched um, far fetched idea, but if it were possible to upload human minds onto computers and to Change the speed at which they run. It could be possible for, for a prisoner to complete a life sentence over so the course of a couple of hours. And if that were possible, then it would be possible to, um, to imprison somebody for subjectively for a long time, um, but their dependents would only sort of miss them for a couple of hours. So that could be a way of um, uh, preventing the imprisonment of a loved one from having serious harm to their, um, their dependents. Um, that's it. So this slide is really sort of summing up some of the most important questions that we think we've raised. Thank you very much.